0: From the studio of KPSU Portland in an association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, fellow students, and alumni, as well as local historians. Thanks for joining us. I'm Madeline. And I'm Lily.
1: Today we're interviewing Professor Katie Barber. She received her Ph.D. in American Studies from Washington State University in 1999 and joined the PSU faculty in 2001. At PSU, she teaches public history, oral history, and Oregon history. Her her book, Death of Celilo Falls, was published in 2005. It examines the impact the Dalles Dam had on the communities of Celilo Village and the Dalles, particularly the loss of sustainable Indian fishing and the gain of postmodern hydroelectric power and increase river navigation. Professor Barber is currently working on a new book in defense of YAM. Thank you for joining us.
0: Welcome. So um, just to start off, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you do and what your role is here at Portland State? Sure. Um,
2: like you say, I'm Katie Barber. I grew up in Portland and currently live actually just a few blocks away from where I went to high school at Jefferson High School. Um, I teach in the History Department, and the courses that I teach are Western U.S., uh, Public History, Native American History, Oregon History, Pacific Northwest, and I'm also on the Indigenous Nation Studies faculty. When I came uh, in 2001, I worked with the Center for Columbia River History, which was a public history consortium that included Portland State University, Washington State University, Vancouver, and the Washington State Historical Society. But that closed in 2011 uh, because of the, uh, the financial difficulties. Um, so that's what I do here. Um, I am really interested in public history and really interested in regional history.
1: Um, can you talk a bit about your education path and how that led you to work in Northwest history, Native American history, and public history? Sure. Um, you know, it really started in high school for mm-hmm. me. Uh, While well, I was
2: a sophomore in high school, there was a really important indigenous fishing case that was winding its way through the local courts. Uh, it was the case against David So Happy. He was being charged with poaching on the Columbia River. And I was fascinated by that case and by treaty issues and what treaties meant uh, for people who are living in Portland and elsewhere in the Pacific Northwest. And it was also at a time when Craig Leslie, a local author, had released a book called Winterkill, and he was dealing with some of those same issues, but in an earlier period. So in um, Winterkill, he actually writes about the inundation of Celilo Falls by the Dalles Dam. He came to our English class when I was a student at Jefferson, and it really impressed upon me how important Native history was to the history of this place, even though In a lot of ways, it was largely invisible in Portland. Um, So that's what got me started. I went off to undergraduate. Uh, I took courses in American studies and then went on to graduate studies. And again, got my degrees in American studies. So I was really interested in American history and literature. And you can see that that grew out of that earlier interest in high school. And then I just kept going to school, mostly because I was Interested, I loved being a student, uh, and I kept getting funded. So I was funded for a PhD program, and that's how I ended up getting a PhD. I didn't really have um, an intention of becoming a professor, but I loved school and thought that that was a good way of spending my time. And then towards the end of my, uh, the end of my degree program, uh, I was offered a position here at Portland State and leapt at the chance to come back home.
1: Thank you. Um, So we also want to talk about, as a public history student, I want to mention the public history program at PSU and the work you do with it. Um, Can you talk a bit about public history as a field and the uh, importance of it? I Obviously that's a lot to talk about. Right. right?
2: So maybe we could start with a definition of public history, Mm -hmm. which is always a tricky thing. Um, I start my intro to public history class, the first week we spend Mm -hmm. some time looking at different definitions that various public historians have written, and basically all of them say it's really hard to define what public history is. In a nutshell, public history is any history that's been created for and by public audiences. Mm -hmm. It used to just mean for public audiences, but now there's a lot of community engagement with the development of public history projects. Um, some people describe it as applied history Mm -hmm. so it's the kind of things that you'd see in a history museum and exhibits or it's oral history or it's digital history Um, so really the phrase is a catch-all to describe history that is done for audiences outside of university settings or outside of the the um, four walls of uh, the academy. Um, I think In some ways, the most important thing that public history can do is it can help to counter um, some of the dangerous nostalgia that many of us walk around with. Mm -hmm. Not all nostalgia is dangerous, um, but none of it is accurate. And uh, what public history can help do is complicate people's narratives about the past. So that they don't become a single kind of narrative, you can think about that with like the 1950s, right? With Leave It to Beaver, um, the woman who stayed home and raised her children and always had a beautiful frilly a- apron on—you know—that was a kind of myth, right? It was a myth that was created through various popular cultural avenues and other kinds of things. And public historians would help debunk that myth. Um, most. A lot, a lot of women who grew up or who were um, uh, adults during the 1950s could tell you that that was a myth, that that didn't reflect mm-hmm. their own lives. But that's the kind of dangerous nostalgia or nostalgia that I think that public history can help debunk so that uh, people who are not studying history in a really formal way um, engage in stories that are complicated and help to explain what we're looking at today. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I think it's really important that public have access to history because most people aren't going to be reading an academic article, and they, if they, if they can see that in the museums or just around them, that you know tells the right and correct history.
0: Right. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Um. So, I also wanted to ask, um, can you talk a bit about how the field of public history has evolved recently? I mean, it didn't even used to be a field, and now it is a pretty solid one that people want to go to grad school for though there's still a lot of, of course, work to be done in the field, so, yeah. Right, Mm -hmm. so the field really developed out of the 1970s. -hmm. It was a Mm
2: -hmm. period of crisis for the academy, where a lot of um, PhDs weren't being hired. Mm -hmm. Sounds familiar. (laughs) Jump ahead to this period of time, and we're facing the same kind of thing, where there are more people who are earning PhDs Mm -hmm. than there are positions, um, professional positions, um, in the academy for those folks. And so a lot of people turn toward public history as a way to engage, continue to engage with history. Um, public history is very rigorous in the same way that academic history is, but it's oriented outward, as I mentioned. Um, so the way that the field has developed in the last couple of decades, I'd say, um, I'd say in some ways they're sort of three important things that have really shaped public history, at least since I've been doing it. Um, One of them is funding. So if there's a lot of funding, and when I first started as a a public historian, there was a lot of public funding. Um, Public history really thrives, and there are a lot of people who are doing public history. But as federal funding constricts, and I'm thinking about the funding that would go to um, Oregon Humanities, for example, as that constricts, it changes what public historians can do and also how many public historians there are out there actually working. Um, So that's one thing that I've seen change. At the beginning of my career, there was a a lot of money. I wrote a lot of grant applications that were successful. At this point in my career, there isn't as much funding and there's less that people are doing a lot more with less. The second thing that I think has really changed in the time that I've been a public historian is the emphasis on shared authority, which was something that actually came out, an idea and term that came out of the 1980s, but really um, took hold by the 1990s and into the early 2000s. And what that meant was that instead of public history being academic historians, or people who were trained as academic historians delivering historical content to public audiences, it was a dialectic that was engaging public audiences to tell their own stories. So, history that's co created or community created. So, all of my public history work is community based. I go into communities, uh, the Chinook Nation, for example, is one, talk to people about how a historian might help their community do what, uh, meet the goals that they've identified, and then work on developing projects. Um, in collaboration with that community. And then the final thing I'll point out is that digitization and digital humanities has totally changed public history. Um, So I started out, actually, I I think I was attractive as an employee when I first started as a public historian because I knew HTML. Mm -hmm. And that was unusual. Mm -hmm. A lot of people didn't. Um, But that was a long time ago. So I could tinker around with websites, and I was hired to put a number of websites um, online. But now, of course, that's, that ability has way surpassed me. Um, what people are doing with websites and digitally is, is really very um, uh, sophisticated in a way that I haven't been able to keep up with. But even thinking about how to deliver uh, public history um, content digitally has really changed how public historians work.
0: Great. So um, we know you're working on a new manuscript called In Defense of YM. We mentioned it briefly in the beginning, but do you want to tell us a little bit about that and how that research came about? Sure. So that book is is an offshoot of an earlier book that I
2: wrote in 2005 that was part of my dissertation that looked at the Essentially, the negotiations that had to occur between the federal government and the four treaty tribes that were affected by the building of the Dalles Dam on the Columbia River. The Dalles Dam inundated a really important native fishery. It's one of the most important native fisheries in the Pacific Northwest, some would argue, on the entire west coast. And uh, that happened in 1957, and it necessitated some kind of uh, a series of negotiations because those were treaty-protected fishing rights. Um, and p- treaty protected fishing sites that were affected by the building of that dam. There are a couple of people that came up in that story, Flora Thompson and Martha McEwen, and they were kind of peripheral. Um, but I thought it would be really interesting to place them at the center of a story and really think about how their um, histories, which are parallel and divergent, um, could help explain what the Pacific Northwest was like during a really important time of transformation around the time of World War II and the Cold War, when the Columbia River was really being rejiggered in some significant ways, in ways that we see manifested today, right, into a series of lakes. You take a wild river and transform it into a series of lakes that really affect Native communities. Uh, Martha McEwen was... uh, um, came from a fairly wealthy family in the Hood River Valley. Um, her family was uh, were orchardists and they hired Indians to pick um, the fruit that they had on their land. And that may be the way that she met Tommy Thompson. Um, but she met Tommy Thompson when she was pretty young. She was a teenager probably at the time and uh, really developed a very good relationship with him. Flora Thompson was a enrolled on the Warm Springs Reservation. And she married Tommy Thompson in 1942 and ended up getting to know Martha McEwen through her relationship with her husband. And uh, what's interesting is that, you know, their lives take them in different directions, but they're both important leaders in their communities. Part of the way that they lead is uh, very gendered I was interested in that but it's differently gendered um, so for Flora Thompson she was you know on the shoulders of lots and lots of generations of Native women who were um, leaders uh, so she had a, a kind of tradition that she could hearken back to but she was also a very modern leader who was having to navigate um, non-Native communities and stresses on her community that were different than others had faced in previous generations. Martha um, was came from a family uh, where the women were often involved in women's clubs. Um, And she continued that tradition. She was uh, the state regent for the Daughters of the American Revolution and involved in other uh, clubs that weren't as reactionary as the DAR, including Zonta International, which was a women's club that was interested in um, professional women's opportunities throughout the world. Um, so they their lives overlapped because of Tommy Thompson, but also because they were both really interested in protecting Salilo Village at a time of this transformation when Salilo uh, Falls were being inundated by the Dallas Dam. And so they worked together um, on a number of different issues, including a highway uh, expansion that would have... Um, necessitated the relocation of a number of people who were living at Celilo Village.
1: Yeah, that sounds really fascinating. Um, when does the book come out? If so we can plug that. In June, In June. of 2018. Okay. Yes. okay, so soon. That's exciting.
0: Soon. Yeah. So um, talking a little bit about primary sources, so mm-hmm. like the letters that a lot of this new research is based on, could you talk a little bit about, so um, talking a little bit about primary sources, so mm-hmm. like the letters that a lot of this new research is based on. Could you talk a little bit about how you came across them and also just your process in general for working with primary sources, which can be a very overwhelming and daunting task when you're faced with what seems like an infinite amount of material? <laughs> well, this is one of
2: those instances where, um, you know, there, without a stash of letters that were collected by a white man who also had native roots, uh, who was living in Portland, if he hadn't collected these letters and saved them and then donated them to the University of Oregon, I would have very few indications or evidence of what Martha McEwen or Flora Thompson thought. Um, So I was really excited to come across the letters of Jimmy James, he was a, um, he wrote thousands and thousands of letters over about 15 years. I think he probably wrote at least a dozen letters every single day mm-hmm. and he kept copies of all of the letters he wrote and all of the incoming letters that he got and he was writing all sorts of people but he was really concerned about the building of the dallas dam and actually wanted to stop it so he wrote a lot of letters in opposition which is why he ended up writing flora thompson and keeping correspondence with martha McEwen. their their interests overlapped they're also Uh, Martha McEwen and Jimmy uh, James were very different people, and I compare the way that they kind of help um, folks at Celilo Village. Jimmy James was a little bit more of an assimilationist Mm -hmm. um, than Martha McEwen was, and so he had a different kind of relationship with people at Celilo Village. Flora Thompson and Martha McEwen never wrote each other, but because I had all of these letters that they wrote to Jimmy James that described their lives and what they were doing, and like times when they were having dinner together, um, I felt like I could recreate that their relationship through that, through that correspondence. Um, so it can be really problematic trying to find, women's records, particularly records that um, help to reveal their inner lives. And it's also hard to find Native voices. So a lot of, if you read a lot in Native American history, you'll read a lot from the federal point of view, right? Um, And less from Native people themselves, although that's changing a lot. But just in terms of what's available in the archives, oftentimes, you know, Native people don't... uh, donate letters necessarily uh, to the archives, or they, don't, they haven't kept them necessarily. So um, God bless Jimmy James for keeping all of his correspondence, uh, for keeping really close tabs on everything, for organizing it very well, and then for donating it all to the University of Oregon archives. In terms of the process for working with these primary sources, I mean, what I had were literally thousands of letters over, like I said, about 15 years. And um, and then a lot of other primary sources. Uh, so I used materials that came from the BIA records. I went to the National Archives in Seattle and collected a lot of materials from there. And I had for my first book as well. Um, I spent a lot of time at the Oregon Historical Society collecting information. Uh, David and Catherine French were anthropologists from Reed who spent a number of years in the 1950s on the Warm Springs Reservation and uh, kept copious field notes, including uh, notes from the funeral of one of Flora Thompson's brothers. So I went to the University of Washington Special Collections and sifted through those materials. So, in other words, it wasn't just the single collection of letters, but lots, of, you know, everything I could find, um, I was rounding up. The other thing that I spent a lot of time doing probably more than I needed to, to be frank, was going through um, records on Ancestry.com. Because part of this is a genealogical story. It's a story of uh, two different families, and I wanted to be able to tell that story as fully as possible. So that was really really nice to be able to just sit in my pajamas at home (laughs) and do that research. But I spent a lot of time gathering that material and then I put together timelines. I used, you know, I put material in tables so that I could look at it thematically and compare different materials. Um, I write a lot of memos, so thematic memos about um, the relationship that Flora has with Jimmy James, um, what she's writing about, what Martha McEwen's writing about, uh, as a way to kind of sift through and listen to those materials one of my favorite um, techniques is to take a couple of documents and actually break them out and kind of into beats right so sentences or pieces of sentences and then really look at what's being said and try to um, put that in my own words and then Tag the each beat with a theme or one or more themes. Um, I can't do that with thousands of letters, but I can do that with a few critical pieces and one of the things that that helps me do is kind of slow down and really look at what the primary resource is trying to do is trying to say rather than sort of looking for what I'm hoping to find. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that I learned as an oral historian. Mm-hmm. It's a technique for narrative analysis that um, asks for the information to really emerge from the primary document itself.
1: Going off that, oral history is also a big part of your work, and such as there's two interviews with Flora Thompson that are sources in Defense of YM. Um, Can you talk a bit about working with oral history and that process? Sure. So
2: I only did one oral history interview myself. Mm For this project. Okay. I do a lot of oral history work yeah. um, for other projects, but I was lucky enough to meet one of Martha McEwen's former mm. students. She was a school teacher, and so I really wanted to know what she was like in the classroom, so I interviewed um, that person. He was nice enough to let me interview him and use that interview in the book manuscript to describe what her interactions were like with students. The two um, interviews... That Flora, that I had that were done by Flora or with Flora Thompson are frustrating and wonderful interviews. <laughs> so they're kind of they'd be great examples of what not to do in an oral history interview because um, in both instances the people in the room don't identify themselves. So the only person whose voice I actually know is Flora Thompson's because She's identified at least as the person that is being interviewed. In one of the interviews, there are several people, at least three or four, who are asking her questions. Some from a distance, so you can barely hear what the question is. Um, and but the, none of them are identified. The date isn't identified. So I kind of I was able to figure out sort of when I thought it, they um, had occurred based on some of the things that Flora Thompson referenced that I could date but, um, but those aren't uh, the dates aren't identified and then a portion of one of the interviews is actually missing so I have two tapes out of three <laughs> so who knows what's on the third one I've never been able to find it One of the interviews comes from the Oregon Historical Society and then one was gifted to me by Flora Thompson's granddaughter who happened to be a student in one of my classes here at Portland State. Um, So that was really wonderful to have an an additional interview from, um, from Flora Thompson. So what's wonderful about them is that you get to hear her talking, so I got to get a sense of her voice, how she told stories. Um, what's frustrating about the interviews beyond some of the um, technical things that I've described is that um, the interviews were really set up so that the so that people could document Tommy Thompson's life Um. not Flora Thompson's life so what they're doing is they're asking her to reflect on her husband and asking questions about his history instead of asking her about hers and of course you know. I wanted them to ask her, what was it like to live on the Warm Springs Reservation? Tell me something about your mother. Um, Her father died when she was fairly young. What did she remember about her father? Some of those things seep out because she can't not tell her own story as she's telling Tommy Thompson's story. So she does that. Um, But really the, the focus of those interviews is on Tommy Thompson. The one thing that happened, though, is I kept listening to them, and um, I had transcripts of both of them, too. And I'd read the transcripts over, and I'd listen to the interviews several times. And one of the things that kept coming up for me was how she was describing how Flora Thompson described her own life and Tommy Thompson's life as a series of spiritual awakenings and how important that was to her. So in other words, one of the things that we can determine in oral history as scholars is how other people understand their own past Mm -hmm. and how they make sense of it. And she did that through um, these religious experiences and spiritual uh, experiences. Every story that she told had a supernatural aspect to it. And she kept coming back to that over and over again. And so I could see how important her religious experiences were to her life. They were central to her life into the way that she understood her life. And that really helped me write about her as a person.
0: And um, I just know as somebody who, I kind of, go back and forth between public history and a more academic, mm-hmm. and I think thinking about oral history sometimes, it can seem like, it I mean, the metaphor I would, comes to my mind would be like a game of telephone, of like, oh, maybe mm-hmm. the, maybe the recollection isn't totally clear, or maybe, you know, it's not... It's not well, it's not a peer reviewed source or something yes, um, right. academic, so academics don't look down upon yeah, yeah. and I'm just curious because I'm a huge I think oral histories are fantastic for what you were saying is that it's how somebody relates to their own personal stories and their own personal history do I mean, can you speak at all to that about how oral history can benefit both the academic and the public fields, assuming that they don't overlap, which of course they do, right. Right. Uh, it's, you know, this is a
2: maybe one of the things that has changed. You asked me a question about what's changed in public history over the last couple of decades. And um, we have, I think, moved in positive ways in thinking about how to use oral history. Mm-hmm. I would say a lot of that is thanks to Alessandro Pratelli, mm-hmm. who's really helped to theorize what oral histories do and what they are. Um, and others, too, who've built off of his work. Um, But what he would say is that oral history is important for two reasons in reference to your question. Um, One is that they do help us understand how people make sense of their own past. And that's really important. It's important for public historians to understand that. It's important for... Um, academic historians to understand that. I'll go back to that description of Flora Thompson and how spirituality was central to her life. Um, I didn't know that I was going to write about that when I took mm-hmm. on the project. And I wouldn't have without um, without those oral histories that directed me in that way. Mm-hmm. So that was really helpful. Um Andres- Uh, Androcello Portelli has written a book in which an entire community of people have misremembered something from World War II, and he talks about why that is and why people would select a narrative that actually doesn't make factual sense and then retell that narrative. And so one of the things that oral history can do is it can help us understand how an individual makes sense of the past, but it also can help us understand how people collectively make sense of the past. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's a really rich way to use and think about oral history. But oral history also helps us understand a factual, more accurate past. Mm -hmm. So to give you an example of that, um, for a long time, historians wrote about Native American boarding schools as though Indians were victims of them solely. Um, They were victims of these assimilationist pressures and physical violence and sexual violence, really horrific things. What was interesting, though, is that once historians, and many of them were Native historians, started interviewing Native American People, adults at this point, who'd been students in Indian boarding schools, was that they discovered the ways in which those experiences also solidified a pan-Indian identity. Mm-hmm. The ways in which Native people, Native children, learned how to resist assimilation, how they practiced assimilation—that uh, resistance—to. Uh, to assimilation with one another, how they reinforce that resistance with one another in light of being in an institution that seemed totalizing. It wasn't, that wasn't the experience that people had. And so oral history really reshaped how people have told the history of Native American boarding schools. Um, it's one that's more complicated, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really powerful too. Uh, I have a friend who um, looks at the history of the U.S. Forest Service, and she's particularly interested at women and minorities who've been employed by the U.S. Forest Service. The kinds of stories that she wants to tell and investigate, interrogate, she can't without oral history. She has Mm -hmm. to be able to talk to the people who've experienced and have done the work um, who can tell her what it's like. Now... Just like with any primary source, you can't take it at face value. You have to push and prod and be skeptical and look for ways that you can um, make sure that, you know, that you can sort of uh, understand how reliable the material is. And of course, the way that you do that is the way that you look at any primary document. You look for other sources that tell you the same kinds of things or that give you the same dates um, so that you can cross-check that information.
1: Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me that there used to be a thing that like oral history was less reliable than like, a written primary source, but that a written primary source can be very unreliable as well.
0: That's right. Yeah, That's any right. primary
1: source can be accurate or inaccurate or...
0: And then there's also the question of Mm -hmm. what is fact, which we can, I mean, people will have whole degrees (laughs) philosophizing, contemplating what actual fact and truth even are. Um, I thought another question, too. So, and a lot of
1: times we think of, like, with historians or other academics that, you know, activism and things like that are not part of what we do, but in certain fields of history, I feel like at least know doing uh, indigenous history like i do that activism does play a role in how we approach it so could you talk a bit about that like with Solidal falls i mean writing about that is about that and bringing that history to light is sort of a form of you know activism in a way maybe not activism right. but you supporting so, that yeah.
2: i was i was reading a book earlier today mm-hmm. in which the author described her work as anti-colonial yeah And I thought, that's such an interesting way to describe one's work, Mm -hmm. right? That's a political stance. But so is writing a history that is colonial.
1: Exactly, (laughs) Right, that
2: just goes unsaid most of the time. So um, I think that all historical creation, of course, is rooted in politics and a political Mm -hmm. stance. Um, It's rooted in ideas about culture and ideas about... Uh, what's important and what's not, and what stories merit retelling and which don't. Um, So that's sort of goes, I think that that's the baseline. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, um, I think that what's driven all of my work as somebody who grew up in the Pacific Northwest, grew up in a place that is in some ways really, really not diverse, and in other ways, quite diverse. I mean, mm-hmm. I can travel pretty readily to a reservation. Mm-hmm. Um, the driving question for me has always been about the my own community. Mm-hmm. what is why are there injustices in this community? how do they manifest and how are they maintained? And um, I think in a lot of ways, Martha McEwen was driven by that mm-hmm. question, which in part was one of the reasons why I was really attracted to looking at her and to spending so much time with her but you know even as somebody in in high school history classes that's sort of what I was thinking about I was we were reading about apartheid and I was thinking how does this translate into the setting in my own neighborhood Mm -hmm. Um, how do these things connect Mm -hmm. Um, and so you know history is I guess in that way I think of history as being usable History yeah. needs to be usable. we need to mm-hmm. you know why why study the past unless it helps us understand the present? Mm-hmm. That's a political stance. I don't want to just understand the present, I guess I also would like to change the future
0: yeah
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> right to alter the future, um, which suggests a kind of political stance there too, which doesn't mean being inaccurate, yeah because complicated and um contradictory stories, I think, can help us, Mm -hmm. must help us understand um, the present. I think sometimes public history is misunderstood as being a simplification of academic history. Um, And I don't think that that's true. I think that public history and academic history both help us to understand things more complexly, to get out of these sort of stereotypical ruts um, of thinking. As as somebody who's interested in native history though, I'm also interested and of course cognizant of the ramifications and legacies and ongoing manifestations of settler colonialism. Mm -hmm. Um, The way in which my life is shaped by that. um, The way in which the circumstances that I live every day are shaped by that and what that means for the communities, the native communities that I collaborate with in public history projects. So in those instances, I suppose very much the history becomes politicized, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I work with the Chinook Indian Nation. Um, they're not recognized by the federal government. Their main political work is to gain some form of rec- recognition I'm in full support of that. Mm-hmm and see the lack of recognition as a real injustice, the way to, for them to gain recognition is to show that they have um, been consistent as a community, that they've persisted as a community over time, and historical research is what does that.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, okay. well, thank you okay. so much. Thank you. And
1: You can find information about this episode on our show page at kpsu.org slash beyondfootnotes and on SoundCloud. We are always interested to know what you guys think about the show. Please feel free to contact the Beyond Footnotes team on Facebook, Twitter, or email at beyondfootnotes at gmail.com with any comments or suggestions concerning the podcast. For previous episodes and extended content, check out kpsu.org. And don't forget to share, tell a friend, subscribe, rate, and follow the show on Twitter and Facebook.